many of you here know that my dad is a chiropractor. And um, if you've ever been to the chiropractor, you will kind of hobble in like this. And then whenever you walk out, you can actually walk. Um, well, in today's passage, we see a kind of that, that um, anticipation as you're up on the chiropractic table and you're ready for the snack crackle and pop and the pain of that. Um, we see Jesus take one out of the chiropractor's book, if you will. He gives a, a painful adjustment in the first part of the text and then quite a bit of relief in the second part. And so we have a, a chunk of text to cover this morning. So I really do invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If, um, if you're using the books, the Bibles in front of you, it's page 818 in, in Luke chapter 12. And um, we'll be starting in verse 13. You ready for the, the painful adjustment? Let's, let's start reading in verse 13, Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's pray one more time this morning. Lord, will you teach us what it is your word has to say to your church, to your people here this morning. Lord, you who give us all things for life and for godliness. Lord, help us even now in this very moment. Amen. So there we have it. Let's get this, this picture. Last week, we read that there was a crowd all around Jesus, as there often was, quite a crowd following him. And um, this, this guy yells out from the crowd, hey, uh, Jesus, why don't you tell my brother to uh, give me some of, uh, some of the inheritance money? Right, parents, you kind of know what this concept's like. Whenever, the, um, whenever your children come and they know they can't actually control their brother or sister, so they come to you and say, hey, tell um, my brother, tell my sister, then they're going to have to listen. Right? And, and that's what we see here. We see this guy call out from the crowd, and Jesus looks at him and says, who made me judge over you? Which is kind of ironic, because Jesus, who is the judge of all the earth, certainly will judge at one point in time, but he's already set his face towards Jerusalem. He has a purpose, and he's not going to get sidetracked from his primary purpose. 
And then, as he often does, Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity, doesn't he? So he says to the man, who's made me judge over you? And then he turns there in, in verse 15, and he says, be on your guard against all covetousness. Some translations say all forms of greed. Why? Why are we to be on our guard against it? Well, Jesus tells us, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, I, um, I went to Wash High, so you might have to forgive me here in a moment, but I went to Wash High where we used to have rap battles at the lunch table, and one Christian artist puts it this way. Your, your, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Here's how he, how he um, writes. He says, your life ain't wrapped around what you drive, the clothes you wear, the job you work, the color of your skin. Now, you're a Christian first. People get living for a job, make a lot of money, start living for a car, get them a house, wife, kids, and a dog. They retire, and then they're living high in the hog. And he goes on and says, your money, singleness, marriage, talents, your time, they were loaned to you to show the world that Christ is divine. You see, our lives are not wrapped up around what we wear, the truck or the hot rod that we drive, or the, for me, the hunting rifle that I'm toting around, or the jewelry that we adorn. And so Jesus says, because of that, be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, it's, it's interesting. Many of us in the church who've grown up in the church have heard the word covet so many times, and we many know the definition, at least the Sunday school definition of the word covet, to want what someone else has. And um, it's, it's interesting, right? We learn that when we learn the Ten Commandments, because the last of the Ten Commandments is do not covet. But again, if you're like me, that's kind of the end where it ends, the end of coveting. And also, if we're honest, it doesn't really seem all that bad to covet, does it? At least when you compare it to the other commandments. Honor your parents, which is like really the core of society, the family. Honor your parents. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Oh, and by the way, don't covet. It doesn't really seem to fit in our modern day, does it? But, but it's so interesting because God himself gives this law to his covenant people in the Ten Commandments. So this is Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Listen to the original law that God gave to his people. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that's your neighbor's. It just kind of feels stuck there in our modern American mindset, doesn't it? We kind of forget about the last commandment. But it's interesting because who wrote the Ten Commandments? Oftentimes we think about Moses, right, who brings it down from the mountain. But if you read the account of Exodus, it says that the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God himself. He said, do not 
covet, right alongside there with adultery, right alongside there with murder and with stealing. Friends, coveting really is a big deal, and it's a big sin. Um, Do you know where the first coveting, if you will, the first concept of this truth shows up in Scripture? If you... uh, if you go to the original languages in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it says that the word there means to be desired or to yearn after, to long for, to desire. And the very first place that we see this in the entire Bible, I'll read you the verse, and you tell me if you recognize it. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and she ate. The very first sin. Genesis 3, verse 6. Nearly the same exact word is used in the Ten Commandments in coveting as is used to describe the fall. Another term, greed, to desire something that you don't have, to be discontent. Greed, covet, discontentment, they're all one and the same in a sense. And what happens when we are discontent with the things we don't have? or disconsent, discontent with the things we do have. This covetousness or this greed shows up, doesn't it? And what happens? It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and discontentment grows and grows and grows. And the last point here on covetousness, here's why it's such a big deal. Coveting is a sin. Because it is discontentment with what God himself has given us. It's discontentment with what the almighty, all-powerful, all-wise God has chosen or allowed me to have. And what he's chosen and has allowed you to have. The text was clear. It said Eve saw and desired that the fruit was to make one wise. And she thought, oh my goodness, this fruit is better than what God has for me now. It's to be desired for something that God has not chosen to give to me. Oh, and when she gave in, if only she knew. If only she had known. It's a sin because it is coveting. Wanting something that God has not given you is it Because you are saying, Lord, you who are almighty, all-powerful, all-wise, guess what? I actually know better than you do. And you've not allowed me to have that. But you know what? I really do need that in order to serve you, in order to be happy, in order to you fill in the blank. It's a sin because it's sinning against the very nature of our sovereign and great provider. And um, the dangerous thing is that this sin of coveting always leads to a dismal reality. 
for Eve, it was death. If only she would have known. She thought she was getting something better, didn't she? But God really does know best. And it, um, it takes a whole lot of different forms. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 12. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For some, it's the bigger house or the new toy or more money. A lot, it's just stuff. <laughs> Many of you know I'm getting married in two weeks. And apparently there's this um, American convention called the wedding registry which is like, all right, let me tell you what I want you to buy for me. <laughs> As Priscilla and I were going through that, we were so sheepish. We're like, do we even need one? But then people are going to ask for it, and they're going to get us something anyway. And then you can't like shop sales, and then you don't want something that's going to break in a week, and it seems like everything nowadays is made really cheap. <laughs> but it's not a matter of having nice stuff so much as the matter of the heart. And so often we see that in our, our world and our society today, don't we? Give me, give me, give me. Covet for a greater status. For others of us, it's something relational. To, to covet a spouse, to want a spouse, to want children. Sometimes it's about our health and body image and how I look or whether I'm stricken with a chronic illness, or my eye is dimming, or my ears are deafening. Desiring some things can become sin, because God himself simply hasn't given it all to us, has he? Be on our guards, church. May we be on our guard against all forms of covetousness. Why? Because it's sinning against God himself. And may I remind you that it's this very God who Peter tells us, gives us, as we read earlier, um, Paul from earlier tells us, he's given us everything to enjoy. And Peter writes, he's given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And for me to say, Lord, I know better, I want that, really is a sin. So we may be saying, how on earth do we apply this biblical principle, this truth, to my life? How do I stop coveting? Well, um, it's November, by the way, which is kind of crazy. And yes, the holidays are here. And we here in the States are blessed to have it tied to our calendar. It's less than three weeks away. This great big holiday called Thanksgiving. We fight covetousness with thanksgiving to God, don't we? When we sit back and say, Lord, it might not be everything that I want, but thank you. Lord, thank you for fill in the blank. Thank you that my feet have even hit the floor this morning. Thank you for life. Thank you for the, for the cross. Thank you that I can see again today. The list can go on and on and on and on, but just simple thanksgiving to be thankful in all circumstances. It's, it's really simple, isn't it? It's a simple thing to do, but just to pause and be thankful. But it really is um, a, a wonderful application as we're driving down the road and thank him for the sun that's coming up when we actually don't have many clouds in the sky on a day like today. 
And Jesus, to further demonstrate his point, he gives us a parable. He tells of the self-made man who pads his portfolio and stuffs his retirement account, if you will. He who tears down a barn because it's not big enough for all that he has made. He's kind of the epitome of, how's the phrase go? Get all, get all you can, can all you get, so you can sit on the can. All right, apparently I'm the, I'm the only one. Get all you can, can all you get, so you can just sit on the can. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but there are three things we see in this guy's life. How does he come across his fortune? He doesn't come across it through shady business dealings. He's not oppressing the poor, taking advantage of anyone, is he? He actually kind of come, comes about it honestly. He's not the corporate fraud. He's a farmer. How does he generate his income? Of course he works hard, but at the end of the day, does he have any real power over the weather patterns? God's the one who's going to bring the rain and cause that seed to grow, seed to grow up and to turn into a harvest. And so it is with you and me today, isn't it? There's so much talk and about my income potential, how much I can generate, especially when we're not beholden to weather patterns in so many trades now. And it's like, look what I made, look what I generated but yet again, the truth is that God is the one who allows us to earn the money. He's the one who actually provides. And the third, where or who is this rich farmer's focus? If you count, the word I, me, my, mine shows up some 10 times or so. It kind of reminds me of the, what are they in Finding Nemo? The birds? Seagulls, the mine, 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 mine. He's only focused on himself. He's no talk of sharing. There's no talk of giving. Mine, mine, mine. He has his own selfish desires in view. And let's be honest, in our 21st century American culture, this guy kind of seems smart, doesn't he? I'm going to prepare for the future. I need a bigger barn so I can store up all my stuff. I need to max out my 401k so I can get the maximum company contributions. He's smart from our perspective. But what's Jesus's response to him? What's God's response? You fool. You don't even know what life is. You don't even know which end is up. Proverbs tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Jesus says, you are a fool. You have trusted in your own devices. You have trusted in your own wealth. And because of that, watch out. Now, who here in this room, you don't need to raise your hand, but who has a, a car payment or a mortgage or a credit card or a student loan? If any one of those creditors were to come knocking on your door today and said, loan's up, you got to pay by the end of the day, what would happen in my, the, the tightness? And it's really interesting 
because the language that Jesus uses here, talking about the rich man, is financial language. He says, tonight your life will be required of you. Translation, tonight the loan of your life is due. And all the things that you've stored up for yourself, how are they going to help repay that loan? It's not going to, will it? You can't repay it. You might be rich, you might be wealthy, but the loan of your life is far more than you can even imagine paying. More than than a thousand barns of storage. Church, we get caught in this, don't we? To get it all for myself, trust in my things, save up because we know this downturn's got to come at some point. And this tripped up this, this wealthy farmer, this sin of covetousness, greed. He gets wealthy, and it's no secret that the hyper-wealthy are greedy, is it? You know, I, um, I remember hearing the story one time. I don't remember him one bit, but Ty Law, an NFL player, I think from the Patriots some 20 years ago or so, he apparently, and it was 2003, 4, 5, this, uh, one of the best in the game at the time, did not show up to training camp because of contract negotiations. He was not satisfied, again, this is 20 years ago, with the $6 million contract because, and I quote, a man's got to eat. <laughs> a man's got to eat. But before we start casting the stone, I have a question. How many in this room have seen a picture like this on social media or may even have one? You know, a picture of you, this is me a number of years back um, in the Dominican, but a picture where we're around all these really, really poor children from another country. And we come back from the short-term mission trip and we say, you know what? The people over there, the kids, they're just so content with everything that they have. You just give them this, and they're just so happy, and they're, they're so content, and they got these great big smiles. If I can graciously let you in on a little secret, the answer is they're really not content with what they have. It's just it manifests itself very differently. If you talk to any folks who spend a meaningful amount of time on the mission field, they'll say they are just as greedy as we are. They just know how to play the game better. To come over to the American who's given stuff away and you take it and then once you leave and they're like behind the house in the corner, they're fighting over the stuff we just gave them. Why? The point is that greed and covetousness are part of human depravity. They're universal. I, apparently, I, I can't believe I didn't hear about this until a couple weeks ago, but there's a Dollar General. Any of you hear about this story down in Prosperity a couple months ago? The Dollar General, was it a penny? Like all of the items, they had a computer malfunction a few months ago at the Dollar General in Prosperity where everything was ringing up a penny. It's like the, the cops had to show up because of some of the fights that are breaking out. And good thing it was on a Sunday morning, so none of you were there. 
But it's universal. Whether we have millions and millions, or whether we're middle class, or whether we don't even know where our next meal is coming from, greed and covetousness are a universal human, human um, what's the right word? Uh, not even longing, right? It's part of our depraved and messed up and sinful nature. For me, for us, when I make it past this point in time, or once I make this payment, then I'll be good financially. Then I'll have more money, and then I can just breathe a sigh of relief. But that's the same exact sin that the wealthy NFL player and that the, the, the little child and that the crazy people in Dollar General make, isn't it? Greed and covetousness are part of our nature because the inclination of the human heart is always for our possessions to really do the possessing, for our possessions to begin to possess us, isn't it? And may I remind you, as Dan read earlier, we can't take it with us, can we? Ecclesiastes, really the whole book of Ecclesiastes, particularly chapter 2, Psalm 39, 1 Timothy, as we've read, remind us that everything for which we toil on this earth, it's going to be left for others. And all of this, according to Jesus, your Savior, this, all of this, the tonight your life will be required of you, and then the things you've stored up, whose will they be? That is the end, according to Christ, of those who lay up treasures for themselves on earth and are not rich towards God. The opposite of this is uh, the, the missionary who many of you know or have heard of, Jim Elliot, who said, he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that was the, uh, the chiropractor's adjustment. You ready for some relief? Comes um, in the next portion, starting in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you. Now let's just pause briefly. Who's Jesus now addressing? He's no longer addressing the crowds at large, per se, but he's speaking to his disciples. And he uses the word therefore. So somehow the thing that he just taught about is connected not to the crowds, but to what he's about to tell the Christians. So church, may I encourage you to listen to the words of your, of your Savior, of your Creator. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then... You're not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you, are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Christian, he's got you. He cares for you. See, if coveting is to desire something that you don't have in an ungodly manner, then could there be a world in which anxiety over the things that you don't have and that you need can be a form of it or at least a sin? See, Jesus is very clear when he tells us, don't be anxious about your life. Eat, drink, wear, For the body is more than food. You need food to live, but which is more important? The body that needs the food. He gave you your body. He gave you your clothes. He certainly knows what they need, does he not? So don't worry. And Jesus tells us about the ravens which, as many of you know, in the Old Testament, there's two classifications of animals. There are clean animals, and there are unclean animals. And guess which category the ravens fall into? The unclean, dirty animals. The second-rate animals that you're not even to touch. Even the dirty ravens are taken care of. Translation for us down here. Those obnoxious, annoying crows that you'd rather feed with a, with a piece of lead than with food. God feeds them, and they don't work for it. They don't sow seeds, but he takes care of them. Aren't you worth more, Jesus says, than those obnoxious, dirty crows that eat stuff that's been dead for a week? Consider the... Consider your clothes. He says, look at the, the beautiful flowers. Or in our case, the, the leaves as they show their beauty here in autumn. They're clothed with brilliance. And even King Solomon, the wealthy and the wise King Solomon, with his beautiful robes woven with precious colors, his royal garb are not as beautiful as those flowers. If you go on with me with a a real quick journey. Just listen to these words from 1 Kings chapter 10. The Queen of Sheba heard about the majesty of King Solomon and his great possessions. This is 1 Kings 
chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, and I've omitted part of it, um, but just catch, a, catch this part. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, and it goes on to talk about his possessions and his horses, and you know what else it describes? The attendance of his servants and their clothing. There was no more breath in her. The writer of Scripture includes she, one of the things which she found so marvelous about King Solomon was not even his royal garb, but the garb of his servants. And Jesus is saying that that king himself doesn't even compare with a simple lily that's alive today and dead tomorrow. Then Jesus asks this question. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, some translations may say add a, a cubit or a span to his height. But Jesus' point is, is clear one way or the other. He's saying, which of you can make yourself taller right now? All the middle school and high school boys are like, I need that extra inch. <laughs> which of us right now can say, all right, I'm going to add 20 minutes to my life. I can't do it. And it's so fascinating, the very next words Jesus says. He says, and if you can't do something as little as that, as if like growing more is a little thing, or as if adding an hour to your life is a little thing, he's calling them a little thing. If you can't even add an hour to your life, then why on earth do you worry about all the rest? Why are you anxious about the rest? You see, anxiety and worry, they steal our joy, don't they? They steal our rest. And ladies, if I may speak to you for a moment, as you're falling asleep there at night and your husband somehow can fall asleep in 22 seconds, and you just lay awake there into the long, late watches of the night, worrying, thinking about the next day, about the bills, about your children, it saps our energy, doesn't it? May I encourage you to remember this passage? And for all of us, as we think about our food, as we think about our paychecks, as we think about our clothes, we see anxiety start to grip us, don't we? It cripples us. It consumes our minds. It consumes our bodies. We can't think about anything else. It changes even our relationships with each other, and it paralyzes us emotionally as it drains our energy and in some cases even puts us in the hospital. Many of you know exactly what anxiety does, don't you? As we move to an application, may I encourage you to memorize these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. To meditate as you're there in the middle of the night at two in the morning to open up your Bible and meditate on these words. If you're prone to this, to make the screensaver of your phone, Luke chapter 12, where your Savior himself says, you're worth more than a flower. You're worth more than the grass. You're worth more than a raven. So don't worry. Your Father cares for you. And he loves you. Some of you wonder if God even does care. 
May I point you to what he says here in Luke chapter 12. As I was thinking about this this week, the, um, the deep and the rich voice of none other than George Beverly Shea were going through my, voice, through my head. Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. When the days are weary, right, the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares. Or the other hymn, his eye is on the, and I know he watches me. So why do we worry, church, Jesus tells us? Oh, you of little faith, he says, oh, you of little faith. See, our faith and our worry, when one goes up, the other goes down. Do we really believe that he's going to take care of us? He goes on here in verse 29 and says, Do not seek what you're to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world, all of those who aren't Christians, they seek after those things. But guess what? Your father knows that you need them. He's going to give the things that his children need. Parents, how many of you are going to tell your three-year-old child, hey, this next month you've got to find your own food? Or your, your infant, I'm not even going to change your diaper today. You know they need them. And so is your heavenly father. He knows what we need. He's not saying you're getting a Rolls Royce, everyone. He's not saying we're getting a $3 million mansion. But he knows what we need. May I remind you of what King David writes in Psalm 37. I have been young and am now old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or children begging for bread. If you're struggling with this this week, I, mean, I encourage you to do two things. One, just think about times in your life or the life of others where the Lord has come through. And if um, you struggle, I'll encourage you just to search George Mueller, Answers to Prayer. Gentleman who started an orphanage in Britain and he literally brought up hundreds of orphans on prayer. And the Lord bringing literal food hours before they even needed it. So if you're just wondering if the Lord takes care of food and clothing, search that this week and be encouraged. Another, yet again, seemingly trivial or small application point. But I think it's a real one. Why? When does anxiety creep in? Whether I'm driving down the road, doing laundry, falling asleep, it's in the, the menial moments, doesn't it? It just, there's a quick thought. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, writes this, and yes, you are allowed to laugh for this part. Next time, church, you're driving along and see one of those shiny dark birds picking out a smashed up skunk, on the asphalt, or in our case, deer, this time of year, you should begin to sing the song we sang earlier, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Set your mind on the crows. If he's the God who feeds the dirty birds, he will take care of the likes of you. Because he is faithful summer and winter and springtime and harvest. So Jesus tells us what to do instead on ver in verse 31. Instead of seeking those things, seek the kingdom of God. Fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
It's His good pleasure to give you not only the things that you need physically, food and clothing, but to give you His kingdom. And finally, He's going to tell us how to be rich towards God in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. We live in a world, don't we, where we're told to name it, to claim it, to, to speak it, and to grab it and get it all for ourselves. That's why we send our kids to school, isn't it? So they can earn more money to have, get better things and have a better life. Now, while there's nothing inherently wrong in all of that, what Jesus is saying is seek something else. Seek God's kingdom, and then all of the rest will come to you. Why, verse 34? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So is your treasure stuck in some portfolio? Custom computer, a boat, that hunting rifle? Is it in our families? Where our treasures are, we can certainly say that's where our hearts are. Now, as a, let's briefly, as we're considering this concept, just take note of this one financial stat. This is fascinating. You know, even, as of 2021, evangelical Christians in the United States of America who are undeniably the wealthiest Christians in all of history, that 41%, I'm sorry, 4.1% of our income goes to gospel work. Now, I'm not going to comment on the percent, but here's what I do want to comment on. Christians who ought to seek the Lord's kingdom give about 4.1%. Do you know what the rest of the world unbelievers give? The same. Now, again, this is not intended to be a guilt trip, but just a reality. I actually don't know what, if this is even representative of people in this room. But if we're commenting on the broader Christian church in America and comparing them to unbelievers does it seem like we're following what Jesus' principle is, is to seek first his kingdom? It's worth thinking about. The inverse is also worth thinking about. If we weren't so calculated and stingy in our giving, and not even financial resources, but in our time, in our talents, if we really sought after the kingdom of God wholeheartedly, what if our primary focus of life was to reach towards God, to invest in those money bags that aren't growing old, and those things that will be waiting in our eternal retirement account? If we were to pray to that end and give to that end and serve to that end and to love to that end so that the Lord's glory may be all over this globe, what were to happen? That's what it means to be rich towards God. When we put our treasures and align our hearts and our treasure with his kingdom work, and when we seek it first, when we seek it primarily, and really when we seek it only. 
And because of that, Jesus tells us to sell our possessions and to give to the poor. And briefly, this is worth noting. If I start selling everything I have, how am I going to provide for myself? That's, Jesus just talked about the anxious heart, didn't he? Increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith. Now again, I want to be abundantly clear. It is not wrong to have wealth. In fact, as Dan read earlier, there is nothing wrong with it inherently. Let me just read a couple verses from 1 Timothy 6, as we have already heard. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The focus is on contentment with what the Lord has. And that's precisely the point that Jesus is making in Luke 12, verse 9 of um, 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich, ring a bell, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires and plun- that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's a matter of our heart, isn't it? And not whether our checking account has a has seven figures or a minus sign. As for the rich in this present age, Paul writes, charge them not to be haughty. It's not a saying, you can't be rich. No, he's just saying, don't be haughty. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, catch this, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's no claim that being rich equals being bad but it says to do good. Don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. Don't be haughty and be like, well, I gave such and such in order that the church might buy. No. Saying is, as one mentor of mine used to say, the only way to be wealthy and not to have it possess you is like this, just to give it away. It's a matter of the heart because it's not ours in the first place, is it? So whether you're rich or whether you're poor, there's one thing that God tells all of us. Don't get caught in the possessiveness of our possessions. Don't play the game of trusting in our stuff or worrying that we don't have the stuff. Why? Yet again, as Jesus' words, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants to give you something bigger and better than you can ever dream. Bigger and better than you can imagine, and it's not necessarily material. Any, he's about, he wants to give you something far more than just material well-being. Eve thought she knew better than God when she desired that fruit, and she got death. And you and I often covet when we think we know what we need and that sin leads us 
to death as well. And the reality is he has something better for us. He wants something better for us. He wants to give you, Christian, the kingdom. And you know how he does that? He knows that you need food. He knows that you need clothes. But he, far more than that, knows that you need spiritual food and that you need spiritual drink. And there was a time when Jesus himself provided that spiritual food and that spiritual drink, isn't it? It's what's in front of us, this communion table. There was a time when he provided another meal, when he even commanded us to eat this bread and to drink this cup so as to sustain us so that we can remember what he had done for us on the cross. He knows we need food. He knows so much more that we need mercy and that we need grace in order to be made right with God. And that's what this communion table is all about. You see, he knows we need what we need for life, food, and drink, and for godliness, his very self. And so Jesus died on that cross, did he not? In order that we may have a spiritual food, a lasting food that will never, ever diminish, that will be eternal, and that will make us right with God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a people here at Friendship Community Church who trust what you give us, whether great or small, materially, relationally, whatever it may look like. May we be a people who trust you so much that anxiety and worries go by the wayside because of the, the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we really trust in giving to your kingdom because you give us far more than anything we can ask or imagine. You give us your very self which we are about to celebrate. Help us now as we look to you and the sacrifice which you have made for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.